<clears throat> Good day and welcome to another special edition of the Offside Musings podcast. My name is Oke Ndibe, and I'd like to welcome you on behalf of my co-host, Emeka Onyagwa. In today's episode, we're going to be looking at a recent BBC documentary called The Bandit Warlords of Zamfara. This documentary is eye-opening, it's disheartening, it's highly informative, and is the kind of documentary that Nigerians ought to watch because it speaks to the present condition of our country. It's an instruction as to the depth of crisis in which Nigeria is mired. So uh, without much ado, I'd like to welcome you and hang on and I'll bring in my co-host and we'll begin, he and I have watched uh, this documentary and we simply think that more and more Nigerians need to see it. The last time I checked, it had been watched by about a million and a half, uh, less than a million and a half people. And I think that this documentary deserves wide circulation uh, because it's quite instructive about the current tragedy in progress that is Nigeria. You're welcome. You remember, um, we've actually mentioned this uh, documentary by the BBC um, a few times uh, glancingly in previous podcasts. And ultimately, we decided after you had seen the uh, documentary, the BBC documentary, I, I actually took time to watch it twice. And uh, we thought that the documentary raises important questions uh, about uh, the condition uh, in Nigeria. Uh, the, the documentary, of course, focuses on Zamfara State. It's uh, extremely well done. It has graphic images about violence, um, but it's also eye-opening in so many different ways. Um, and for me, the central thing is how it undermines and deconstructs uh, sort of the conventional narrative in Nigeria, that there was, um, that there is a kind of uh, symbiotic relationship um, between the Hausa and the Fulani in Nigeria. What we find in the documentary, which by the way, uh, was narrated by uh, a really impressive young man. His name is Yusuf. He identifies himself as a law student uh, in Nigeria. Um, I don't know which university he attends, but he's an interesting character because his mother is Fulani and his father is, uh, is Hausa. And so he brings a depth of knowledge uh, of the two cultures um, and a particular insight 
into the doing of this, uh, into the uh, narration and production of this documentary. I do know that when the documentary first came out, the Nigerian government was pretty upset and made some, I think, uh, the Nigerian information minister, Lai Mohammed, uh, made some open threats against the BBC. I think actually the, the, that the Nigerian government uh, was thinking of imposing some kind of restriction, um, punitive measures against the BBC, but uh, in the end they pulled, uh, they must have figured out that if they moved against the BBC, it was going to make the documentary even more widely uh, known and watched uh, around the world. But having watched it, Emeka, you and I agreed uh, that Nigerians uh, needed to see, that more Nigerians need, needed to see this documentary. So I'd like you to begin by uh, talking to me about sharing with our viewers your impressions when you first uh, saw this uh, documentary, The Bandit Warlords of Zamfara. Yeah, I think, I think it was, um, it's a very well done piece. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Uh, start from that. The piece is very, very well done. Um, in my opinion, I think it's a good piece of work. Um, it starts from one of the biggest highlights. So for, for those who don't know, um, you know, we all know Nigeria and people tend to lump Nigeria all in one. Surely overseas, uh, you meet one Nigerian that does something and it's all Nigerians, you know. Whether you had a bad relationship with the Nigerian or whatever, um, but Nigeria is a very diverse country. I think that that should be obvious even to to, to matter your, your intellect. Um, but the key thing here is not just a country of um, three hundred and seventy-one languages counted by the linguists. Um, some are still pending. Uh, verification, uh, and I'm not talking about dying languages. I'm talking about these things or sub languages, you know, like you have Okwani's um, and it, um, whichever place you go to, whether you go to like a boy, for instance, with the Igbos, you have a lot of sub. This thing, you go check it out. Um, um, sub Igbo word languages um, and all these kind of things. Talking of distinct languages, but the key the key thing here about this documentary, if we're going to get into this, is you have a north and you have a south. Typically, people in the south tend to look at people in the north as all northerners. So once you get to, you take up a map of Nigeria, you go past, um, you go past even um, um, or your, all these places, what you end up having is people even classifying like Kwara, um, people classifying everything north of Osuka. So Benue, people classify Benue, TVs, Domas. They just put, take all everybody and just lump them into a basket. And for those who might be a little bit more adventurous, you might be like, okay, well, okay, these guys are kind of different. But then they lump the key part of the documentary showing something. They lump um, the Alsa Fulanese all into one basket and just call them Northerners. And that's a key thing in this documentary. Um, I've heard people talk about why are you giving bandits a chance to talk? You know, these are criminals and da 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 da. Um, I think that's, that is, those are people who want to um, discard the intellectual aspect of what they were saying in that documentary. <laughs> and one of the key things you'd see, even the bandits saying is they themselves felt 
marginalized. They felt Fulani's don't get mm -hmm. any position. It's not my words. This is what um, some of the key interviewees on the on the in, within the documentary saying, um, and these people by and large represent um, the dissatisfied factions mm -hmm. of people, um, Fulani people who have taken up arms. Um, they felt they feel under attack by the Nigerian state, and there's more than enough incentive to show that. Um, you know, if you go into the makings of Boko Haram, I think a fantastic book is uh, Mike Smith talking about it and how it was ignited. Um, how you, you, you chronicle, you chronicle um, with that one and religiosity by Tui Falola. It's another good one chronicling um, the exploitation and the explosion of, well, both the exploitation of people through religion. Um, but more or less the explosion of religion as a haven from the economic downfall of Nigeria, the obvious economic downfall from the late, from the sixties, actually from right from independence, go chronicle it. You're talking of talking about, um, um, looking at the, the, the Shegumi's, Gumi's father, actually, Shegumi is now, is still a prominent cleric. Um, but before I get to that, just to, to, you know, get back to the, um, uh, the Alsa Fulani dynamic. So when you look at the, the Alsa Fulani dynamic, it go back to the Alsa states who get conquered by Danfodio in the early 1800s and they install Fulani leaders in these places. And the Fulanis within Nigeria, for the most part, don't trace their lineage to Nigeria, um, as best we know. Mm -hmm. Um, so a lot of them, go back even farther in history, you know, trace their lineage into Tuaregs and all that. So you'd, you'd have um, people who um, were part of the Almond Caliphate in Northern Africa, not necessarily even part of the Ghana Empire or the Songugari Empire, not necessarily part of some of them, you know, trace their say that they, they are from um, those remnants of those empires, uh, but a lot of them trace their distance as far back as even the um, um, what they call it, the uh, uh, call it? Abudia Empire, first the first empire that um, sprung up after the death of the prophets that encompassed northern Africa. So you have the what what's called the Bebe tribes and so on and so forth. Not to get too technical about it, but large large you know by and distant they become entrenched in in Nigeria, um, in the area, in these areas, in these communities in the 1800s. Um, just, just the, and you see that tension between the larger, um, and they, 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 you know, they've installed, they swallowed up all the seven Alsa states and all that. But the Alsa's are more, way more in number than the Fulanis, even with the continuous influx of water. They are way more in number. Um, and this documentary shows the continuous clash that has existed, um, you know, even before Danfodio continued, Danfodio, you see the, the Fulanis feel like they don't have places to get their castles, um, which, you know, it sounds, it might sound mundane to a lot of people, but for a pastoral nomadic ethnic group, it's a big deal for them. Um, they feel the outsiders have all the say, and the outsiders feel by and large, like they one, they're under attack too these people attacking them don't have origins in these places. And they seem to, if you point to the top, 
of uh, the power structure in most of these states currently. It's not the outsiders that rule. Uh, but the Fulanis themselves don't see those rulers as representing them. So it's this very, you know, I know it's a little bit uh, distant, but it's this very convoluted dynamic mm. that, we, you know, yeah. we see playing itself out in the narration by these um, um, these key um, 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 people representing different factions, talking about really, by and large, representing different um, um groups mm-hmm. you know so that's a key that's a key thing to to, yeah. to start with for me mm-hmm. in this documentary it yeah. shows that uh you need to uncouple this oh ROI or northern or whatever it is you need to uncouple that mindset and then take a look at some of the things that are happening there and when you take a look at it everybody on the ground feels 100 percent disenfranchised whether you feel they belong there or not. Yeah, so absolutely. I, I think that you've done an excellent job of unpacking some of the uh, critical issues that are raised by this documentary. That's why I say that this is eye-opening. Uh, and that's why I think that um, more and more Nigerians would benefit uh, from watching this because it situates the Nigerian... Uh, Nigeria's political and socioeconomic drama uh, within a clearer context than most Nigerians are able to um, otherwise sort of articulate. Um, so I, I have made the case always, you know, uh, that Nigeria doesn't work for Nigerians, broadly speaking. So I have some friends who are Igbo, uh, Yoruba from different minority ethnic groups who would from time to time say to me, oh, you know, the House of Fulani have everything and uh, we have nothing. That's why we need to leave the Nigerian nation and its, you know, tragic compulsions. And my response would always be, that when you say that the House of Lani have everything, that you're looking at a very tiny selection of people who happen to be ethnically Hausa, ethnically um, uh, Fulani, who have access to Nigeria's resources. But I said, but if you look at it also, you see that there are Igbo people who have access, there are people people who have access, there are Yoruba who have access. But Nigeria has not worked uh, for decades for the vast majority of Nigerians, including Hausa people, including Fulani people. Um, And that is one of the uh, more dramatic things that come out of um, of this documentary. Because you see the bandit warlords, the Fulani warlords of the title of this documentary, speaking with passion um, and making the point that they are oppressed within Nigeria, that they are marginalized, that they are uh, um, basically that they are discriminated against. So it goes against the grain of the narrative that we often get in our country. 
And so there are attacks on the Hausa community. So, you know, so they posit within this um, documentary the fact that, of course, the Fulani are pastoral, um, you know, cattle rearing, um, nomadic uh, people, and the Hausa are sort of more, the Hausa are farmers, essentially. And so part of the Part of the conflict, which is not necessarily articulated with clarity in the in the documentary, is that we're seeing um, a certain ecological aspect to the to, to, to the whole crisis, right? So the desertification is a, is is a critical factor. The Sahara Desert has been making big incursions uh, from the north. And so farmland or, 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 or the, the land available for these cattle rearers to um, lead their cattle and have the cattle feed is becoming less and less available. And so over the, over the years, they have begun to destroy farmlands. You know, because their cattle will go through farmlands and just decimate everything, and so, so you find the Hausa farmers, of course, begin to to resist all of this, and then the Fulani, uh, the Fulani's response is to use AK forty sevens and other really sophisticated uh, weapons to attack Hausa communities and to just pillage and to rape and to to burn and then uh on their on their own part the house have begin begun to raise village uh vigilante groups that then go into the forest and often find the hiding places for these fulani herdsmen and then would visit their own violence on them so so that's narrative of mutual savaging is is uh, i mean it's 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 very very intriguing especially because of this perception in the broader nigerian uh, political ecosystem which holds that the hasa fulani in a sense are homogeneous uh unit yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It holds that they're like more like one, precise, like one unit, precise. um, which is, which has never been the case. Yes. Uh, you know, the, yes, the seven house states that were submerged, well, that were, um, taken over by the, uh, Danfodio, by Usman Danfodio Jihad, um, are all being led by Fulani's, you know, blue blooded now, what, you know, who, which is a very interesting dynamic. There are so many dynamics at play when you think about it. Um, but there are Quranic dynamics at play because, um, Dan Fodio had led his jihad against the Alsas because he felt they were not Islamic enough. And then he, he goes in and then they end up instituting a, um, a, 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 um, hereditary monarchy. Which is the biggest? If you go back right from the Umadaya back in the 1640, um, 
the first revolts that ended up happening in North Africa was always this based on this conversation that um, Islam shouldn't, um, uh, Islam doesn't have hereditary, this the same kind of conversations you you have against those who hate what you now have in places like Arabia, um, where you have a hereditary, which is essentially that battle between Saudi Arabia and, and well, part of that battle between Saudi Arabia and Iran, where the Iranians don't, don't um, a, not just that they see Shia and Sunni, but there's also that hereditary uh, distance. But now you have a hereditary, um, you have a hereditary um, caliphate in Nigeria. In, in much of northern Nigeria. Uh, much where, of northern Nigeria. With the exception of the Kanuri uh, sort of areas, because the Kanuri yeah. really were never defeated by Udmundan uh, uh, Podi. Yeah. One other area of of uh, the documentary that I'd like us to to look in is how um, uh, the BBC, through Yusuf, this law student who narrates the um, the documentary, was able to reach critical players in this conflict. And so a couple of months ago or more, uh, this Fulani bandit who was tabanned by an emir, and of course the emir was, uh, I think, suspended by, um, by the, uh, ultimately by the governor. But in this documentary, this bandit is interviewed and he's asked a question, you know, um, uh, why do you kidnap people? And his response was that he did not kidnap anybody, that he was a killer, that he, he killed people. And Yusuf then asked him, how many people have you killed? And he said, basically, um, I can't count the number of people I've killed. You know, he says he's killed a bunch of Hausa vigilante and that he could not, uh, he, you know, that basically he's killed an uncountable number of people. So what's strange for me, I mean, part of what's strange about this is, as we noted at the time, when I believe his name is Alero or something, or that's a name he's known by, that on the occasion when the emir tobanned him, that this self-confessed murderer, um, who said, by the way, that his followers, some of his, um, some of his, the people who that he commands were the ones doing the kidnapping, but that he himself just kills people, right? So <laughs> I don't know whether he felt that to kill was was a more civilized thing to do than his followers who would, uh, mm. who would kidnap. Yeah. Um, but it, it's, it's interesting that there is actually a bounty on his head issued by the Nigerian law enforcement and that this guy would be banned by an MI in Zamfara state. Uh, it was uh, an event that was advertised publicly and apparently attended by hundreds, if not thousands of people. And the same police that said they are looking for him could not go there and um, affect 
demands a rest. It's 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 just um, it's interesting. And of course, there is also the another bandit leader um, who was interviewed, who talked about their abduction of two hundred and eighty schoolgirls. Uh, I think is. Uh, um, Jengebe uh, uh, school, you know, they were in school in Jengebe. And uh, so 280 schoolgirls were taken as they slept and uh, taken into the forest uh, where they were held in captivity until. Uh, negotiation. So anyway, so I, I wanted you to, I wanted to hear your response to that aspect of, of that documentary. Yeah. So you'd also have to look at the, um, if you, you'd have to go back to and take a look at it. A, a, a good critical point is to understand how, what we know today as what, what today is the flavor of the, well, the flavor of that world, Boko Haram, um, but there are a whole bunch of them. I mean, Boko Haram is even you got Iswab. Yeah, there Boko Haram is is is. By the way, um, even in that documentary, they talked about the the bandits had uh, was it thirty camps that they, they mentioned spread all out in different places, just within Zamfara, one Zamfara state alone. And we know this thing spreads into um, different places. But if you go go back and take a look at how Boko Haram became radicalized. Um, you go, you talk about, I always talk about the Metisenes, which was just another expression of um, economic dis- dissatisfaction with the ruling elite. This is from the 60s, 50s, 60s, religious unrests. Um, you know, you'd see the gradual progression from where major, at that point in time, major Akilu, who ends up heading the DSS, by the way, but that's another story for another day, goes in to crush uh, these protests and all those um, these things in Kano, walks into the house and it was really bloody. Um, that, in a way, ra- radicalized some of them, but radicalized them to just live on their own. They mostly live on their own, go from place to place. They essentially are trying to get this nomadic village where they could just stay on their own. Just wall, everybody should be left alone. Bottom line is along the line, you had politicians that came in and decided to entice them to become warriors for them with the promise that they would give them their religious vicinity, right? They brought them into the government, specifically Ali Modu Sharif. And um, what they call him was also part of it, Tinubu's vice president. Vice presidential nominee Kasim. that uh, Asim Shetima mm-hmm. was also part of that um, crew. So they bring them in at the point in time, Mohammed Yusuf that gets executed by this thing, you know, his uncle. And it's this thing, they were all, even he himself, they were all, they all had um, official roles in the government. In fact, point in time, his uncle, I believe, had, uh, was a commissioner for the government, in the state government of, but this was in Oranu, by the way, not even in Zamfara. The, the the thing there is the key thing about bringing up uh, them being uh, radicalized and then you know chased and then killed, which they talked about in the documentary, the Nigerian state is chasing them and killing them and all that. That was it. After they were used them and given them weapons, they now didn't want to um, associate with them and they decided to go after 
you know, gaff after them. And, you know, one of the big things that happened in Brown, opposite states, yes, was the killing of Mohammed Yusuf. And, but not just Yusuf, a whole bunch of them were killed. When you take a look at that, um, uh, this thing, you, you understand that the politicians use them not just to be dogs, but the fact they use them in, its, in the sense that they had the trust of the people. They had a large, and they still do have a large trust of the people, the majority of which, if not all of which, are certain classes of Fulani people, right? You would understand that looking for them is the same way you could think of it in modern distant America going into Iraq or Afghanistan and looking for some of these guys, whether it's Osama bin Laden, um, Zawari, or you go to Iraq, you're looking for um, Muqtada al-Sada, or, you know, a whole bunch of names blast from the past in some ways. You, are, you, you have people who can be in plain sight, even if you're talking of America, for instance, and Britain or whichever countries, they could be in plain sight. But as far as they stay within their... Uh, friendly confines, you're not going to find them. Now, the big thing there is not, is not that they are within friendly confines, is who is within this circle of friends. And clearly, this friendly circle includes government officials because from the get-go, they are the ones that always play the yo-yo with them. Mm-hmm. They've played the yo-yo, they radicalize them, give them money. And now with the explosion of conflicts um, with Northern Africa again. You're talking of Libya. You're talking of parts of Sudan. You're talking of the caches that have come in from Syria, from both the government caches and the weapons that America has brought in. There is a thriving arms sales. There's a thriving arms sales um, um, corridor that is around that place. And all these guys now, now all, all they are all about mm-hmm. is, is getting money going to the corridor, getting these weapons that used to belong to these governments and in some, in a lot of cases, the weapons that America and co puts in there and using these weapons to act as the, um, to act as the protectors of this. And you see it in documentary where they talk about if one Fulani is killed or anything happens to one Fulani, we'll kill we're going to kill a hundred. And you see the ladies that yeah. are born to, at one point in time, talking about uh, these people are never going to forgive. The mm-hmm. Fulani ladies who had nothing to do with, well, well, they had, they seem to have nothing to do with any of this. Let's take mm-hmm. it and they had nothing to do with it. You know, they, they were part of just retribution. Yes. And even so, they themselves are like mm-hmm. saying, these guys will mm-hmm. never forgive. So it's, it's, yeah, it's so, a so, you cycle. Know. Absolutely. So, um, just as you, as you mentioned, um, I have a few clips of what, uh, this guy, um, who took part in the abduction of the 280, uh, uh school girls said, you know, uh, he says that terrorism is the right punishment for the government. So these are people who feel disaffected from the Nigerian state and who feel that um, it was important to uh, to respond to the government that they see as violent, with violence of their own. So, so it said that the abduction of the girls is tied to terrorism, 
and that terrorism is a right punishment for the government, not for the people that they that that they are holding. Which you would imagine that, from the point of view of the of the girls who were abducted and of their families, this was punishment. The terrorism was directed at them, uh, but these terrorists felt that they were directing the violence or their terrorism at the government. So. And he says the right way to teach them, the government, that they are wrong. Um, and then he said he felt no guilt at all for what he did. Um, uh, and he says, all we know is we inflicted disgrace on the government. We, infil uh, we inflicted disgrace on the government. It's interesting because throughout the documentary, you get um, a clash between uh, government narrative and the memory of the community, which I trust far more. So there's this Hausa community that was attacked. Um, and the elders of that community took the, uh, the BBC to the grounds where the victims of that attack were buried. And they said that the government had uh, issued a statement saying that 50 something people were killed, I think 58. But the community said that more than 200 were killed and they pointed to mass graves. They said 15 people were buried in this grave and 20 in that grave. And so they pointed uh, to different graves. So, this is a familiar story in Nigeria where needless uh, violence is inflicted on Nigerians. Uh, people die needlessly and the government comes out, maybe uh, a certain number of people die. And the government of Nigeria always has this attitude that if 200 people die and we say that only 58 died, that somehow it 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 reduces the, the 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 gravity of the government's failure to protect lives and property so for me if 58 nigerians died who should not have died even if one nigerian dies who should not have died it's already an indictment on the incompetence and the disaster and uh, that is the government. That is uh, because the government's mission, any government what is sold, its minimum mission is to protect the lives and property of its citizens. Um, but then this guy who abducted, uh, whose group ab abducted 280 uh, girls, uh, also undermine the government's account in another area. So the governments in Nigeria, both the federal government as well as state governments, would often say that uh, victims of abductions were released by their uh, kidnappers without the payment of ransom. And here is this warlord, okay, bandit warlord, saying that initially they had demanded 300 million from the from the government of Zamfara to release the 280 girls that in the end they settled on 60 million 
And so Yusuf said to him, you saw 60 million Naira? And the guy said, yes. And the next question was, what did you use the money for? And he said, we went and bought more arms, more weapons. And uh, he in fact said, oh, you know, if we had time, I could go and get some of those weapons so that you'll see. So that what's the picture here is that terrorism in Nigeria then becomes self-reproducing because the terrorists use the weapons they have to commit violence against Nigerians, including the violence of kidnaps and of abductions. The governments are private. There's a, a, a situation where um, a, a, a woman was speaking about being abducted from their families and they had to sell their farmlands and so on to meet the 3 million Naira that the abductors had asked for. And they had left their home thereafter and they were now staying as refugees in a settlement in a different community. So you find a, a, a situation where law enforcement has failed in Zamfara st State, in much of the Northeast, indeed throughout Nigeria. People are abducted on highways. The abductors then get money in terms of ransom. They go and buy more weapons, so they're able to inflict greater violence and greater acts of terror on more and more a widening uh, a cycle of victims. So it's, it, 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 um, it's interesting uh, on so many uh, level. And this guy, the bandit whose group abduct, abducted the Jengebe uh, school girls, uh, says in the interview that uh, kidnapping it has become uh, a business. So, so we bought weapons. Uh, so <laughs> guns and so on become weapons for the carrying out of this business. And it's the Nigerian state we want to emphasize. It's the Nigerian state that has produced the social conditions for criminality to thrive in Nigeria, and is the Nigerian state that is ultimately failing to play its role, its legitimate role as an enforcer of laws. And once the state abdicates its responsibility to protect citizens from unwarranted attacks, then what happens is, again, in the documentary, this is a, uh, a trope that comes up again and again. So citizens then take to self-help. They go look for their own guns. They protect themselves. And in protecting themselves, they inflict, ultimately inflict violence, even on innocent people. Yeah. Um, it's, 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 it's true. It's... Um... It's now in a self-sustaining um, venture um, that still has an ideological bent. People who believe that they are being marginalized. You know, it's funny. The rest yeah. of Nigeria looks like... By the way, I mean, uh, um, yeah, there is a, a point where uh, people talked about, yeah, this is tribal, you know. 
uh, one of the um, Fulani leaders said, yes, it's tribal. He says the Fulani attack uh, innocent people. Then the Hausa and their reprisals attack innocent Fulani. And he said, all the crime that you commit mm -hmm. to merit attack is simply to belong to an ethnic group, you know? So if it is Fulani who have set out to do their attacks, they are targeting uh, Hausa people. Um, but also there are moments in the, in the documentary where um, the Fulani would also attack fellow Fulani and vice versa. Yeah, yeah. It, it's a self-sustaining cycle. Um, there are people who, as far as they're concerned, the narrative for them is that they are highly marginalized and mm -hmm. highly disrespected. Mm -hmm. In the rest of Nigeria, we'll talk about uh, how the Fulanese are in power, whether it's in the north, um, in parts like that, in other parts where you have other ethnic groups where they are creating emirates and creating emirs, right? But to them, the the people don't represent them, don't care for them. One of his quotes is that if they are if they attend if they attend positions, if the position opens up, that they will they'll take twenty house people before they consider before they even consider one you know, yeah. funny person. And yet so, the impression out there, uh, so this is the impression of a Fulani in the in the documentary, right? Mm -hmm. And yet the impression that, you know, I know that a lot of my Igbo friends um, will tell you that every position goes to the House of Fulani, you know. So that, that, that sort of conflation of the two House of Fulani mm -hmm. um, uh, is it's so, it, it, it's so accepted within Nigeria so that for a lot of Nigerians, it's going to be, come as a shock to see the war going on between uh, the two groups that Nigerians would usually uh, bring together under one bracket. Yeah, well, we bring it together under one bracket because of uh, collective ignorance, which mm -hmm. is largely due to the failure of the educational system mm -hmm. taken out of history in schools. So, you know, no matter how you explain it to people, you're still going to have a large swath, large, you don't have large swaths of people who mm -hmm. um, don't want, don't even, you're talking about people that, for myself, you look at the new pays, the, um, uh, I mean, other larger ethnic groups, the Gwaris, the, uh, I mean, so many groups you could call, call you know, a lot of them are even actually Christians. Um, they were also never subjugated by the um, uh, down for the mm -hmm. um, Large amount of, I mean, I feel like a lot of those states, uh, like you see, go to Bauchi, for instance. I lived there for, for a little bit with my dad. Um, I felt like most, the majority of the indigenous I, I, I'd seen there were Christians. And you see it in state creation. They created local governments and states to pack all the Christians away from uh, political power. So you go like the Azare local governments, the, um, all those places, they were all just packed with, and then they would spread out the other distance. So, you know, it's a very tricky dynamic. Mm -hmm. um, it's a very tricky dynamic to say the least. And now you have a whole bunch of people who feel they are being marginalized and they, 
if Fulani is even though the president is Fulani father mm-hmm. and he more or less represents more of the Fulani people. They don't feel represents them. Same thing with the Zafra governors, they're always Fulani people, right? Um, they don't feel they represent them. So it's it's a whole pe- bunch of people who feel they are victims and who are going to the extremes to make their points um, mm-hmm. heard yeah. and expressed. And the key points in it when we talk about education is you'd see even with them, they are talking about, um, you'd see the, those the repentance, the, the repentant um, band, the guy. Yeah, who, who had given up his guns and all. Who had given up his weapons. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about it like a lot of these um, how are they getting recruits? Well, a lot of places have been attacked. A lot of this, this, this. There's an there's an almost complete absence of education mm-hmm. in these areas. Yeah. So a lot of these people don't know anything, and all they know is that they need to die on the battlefield. Yeah. They need to be martyred on the battlefield. Mm-hmm. So it's an absolute. You know, it's 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 a very destructive cycle. Yeah. And let's let's um, talk about yeah. Um, Talking about that, so so the absence of education, which comes up again and again. So this again, um, the uh, the bandit leader whose group abducted the girls. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things he says in the documentary is that everyone wants money. And that's why things are deteriorating uh, from the top to the bottom. So this is a critique, an interesting critique, again, of the Nigerian system. Everyone wants money. And that is why things are deteriorating from the top to the bottom. And this is borne out by the situation in Nigeria, where the ostensible leaders of the country basically loot the treasury. That's the job that they're excelling, is to loot the, the treasury. And, and once people see that um, going into government is the quickest route to self-enrichment, um, and of course that this self-enrichment is at the expense of the generality of the people on the uh, a specific public officer's control, then everything is up for grabs. Every citizen then feels that um, they can use whatever means that's available to them to uh, essentially uh, make their own money, which everybody um, as this bandit says, everybody needs money. Everybody wants money. Um, but to go to pivot back to education, for me, um, uh, one of the most painful uh, moments in, in, in the documentary has to do with uh, the schoolgirls who were abducted. Um, you remember on the day of their release, after the government had apparently paid a ransom of 60 million, uh, shameless politicians gathered the parents who had come to take back 
their um, their girls who just been released. But these shameless politicians just began to basically, I said, we are bask in this false glory, as if they had achieved um, sort of um, a heroic act of governance in getting this, the, these young girls released, you know. So they were reading speeches, introducing honorable speakers, so so and so, the honorable commissioner should come and speak. And as they were making these mindless speeches, the, the parents and the community that had come to retrieve their daughters, who had just been uh, rescued from captivity, not rescued, but released by by the uh, by the abductors, began to grow restive, you know. And so they began to demonstrate because they said they wrote that they would take their daughters just released, true, to get home, were uh, often rigged with Fulani bandits. So they said night was falling. And so they began to complain and suddenly the politicians themselves recognized that um, things were getting out of hand and they got in their vehicles and they were, as they were zooming uh, away, the soldiers in their midst, the soldiers who were guarding them began to shoot indiscriminately. And the poor young boy, I think five years old, who had come to welcome his sister was killed. To hear his father speak about the tragedies, it talks about my son got up a little bit and looked into my eyes and then died. Um, it, 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 it just is heart-wrenching. It's heart-wrenching. But it's the kind of tragedy that Nigeria visits on its citizens. And that's why ultimately I, I tell people that Nigeria works for maybe one of one percent, the people who are really um, at the top of, uh, at the head of affairs, uh, at different levels of governance. Those are the people who are stealing the resources of the country. Um, that is very, very painful. The other painful moment is uh, when one of the girls who was rescued spoke about the pressures on her and on the other girls to go get married. But she said, no, that she wants, she, you know, that she wants to get an education. Unfortunately, uh, after their release, their school was shut down, uh, principally because the government has no answer. The government has no way of securing uh, the safety of these girls of their communities. Yeah, that, 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 I mean, I was, um, yeah, at the end of the documentary, mm -hmm. the father, um, you know, coming there to, as a matter of fact, this guy is the fact, the way, the way, um, at least the way, the way, when I was, the way, the way it played out was these, these guys all came in, everybody wanted their moment of fame and all that, and they sat down and sat down and yeah. they got to 6 p.m. Mm -hmm. and they all, especially the government, 
all realized like, oh, we all have to get home because we can't be on the roads late. And they all started trying to rush out of the place. Mm -hmm. And these were the guys that, one, are in charge of keeping the ball large, <laughs> keeping the place safe. That tells you they something, don't do it. doesn't it? I, exactly. And then they come there and then in this um, self-aggrandizement of, of, of whatever level they, they sit down and have all these irrelevant speeches mm -hmm. to the point of endangering everybody's lives there again. Mm -hmm. And they start running home and you're running home in dispersing the crowd that is also now panicked and trying to run away. Mm -hmm. They end up uh, killing this kid, you know. I was touching to see the father just talk about it. Um, it was it was touching. Um, yeah, as a father myself, I yeah. I I came close to tears when you watch it because I put myself in the position of this man. If you said to your son, "Let's go and meet your sister who's just been released," and then you get a daughter, one child back, but then the other child's life is sacrificed by the government, by the same government whose incompetence created, allowed the situation where your daughter was abducted to start with. The and the key point is, the key thing is, I don't know, you missed that part where he talked about uh, how the reaction mm -hmm. from the government, for the governor and the government officials. Mm -hmm. I mean, to paraphrase it, you go watch it yourself, you haven't watched it, but to paraphrase it, it felt like certain level of condescension yeah okay yeah. but you know who is your who are you and who is this who your son you? by the yeah. way yeah you know Enough. so there's a, an absolute indifference a man is facing the most tragic event perhaps of his life but the government is the government that caused that tragedy that he has no recourse. This man has no recourse. It's not like he could go to court, sue the government. Basically, he's on his own to his, you know, his own with his grief. The yeah, government he is. He could sue the government, but. Yeah, who is going to, you know, how is he going to find up resources to pay a lawyer? And if you pay the lawyer, if, if you pay precisely, the case stays in court for years. The government has all the money, even if the case ends. And the judge awards you money. First of all, when you lose your, your child, no amount of money is enough compensation, right? Uh, the life of a child is, 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 uh, is priceless. But even if the government were asked by a judge to pay you a certain amount of money, you will never get that money. Nobody collects a judgment in Nigeria. I have a friend who sued the government has a judgment of 50 million. They has no recourse, mm. no recourse, you know? Okay. So it's, it's only if you have a friend within the government who decides to pay you, otherwise there's no way to ensure that you collect on, 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 um, on a judgment that has gone against the government. The Nigerian state is lawless. That's, that's the sum yeah. of it. The Nigerian state is lawless. And so in a lot of ways, the lawlessness of the bandits in the documentary. So there's one more um, uh, quote that I want to get from the, the bandit, one of the bandit leaders. 
He says, they say when there is insecurity, the government gets money. Okay? Everyone is benefiting. We also get money. So he's talking about the government getting money from insecurity, and he's saying that they themselves uh, also get money. He said, though, for our money, blood is spilled. So people are spilling the blood of their fellows. People are spilling the blood of fellow Nigerians. Most, uh, most of their victims innocent because the government has created a situation where citizens are desperate. There's nothing going because a visionary Nigerian state should resolve the question of herdsmen. We don't have to have nomadic herdsmen in Nigeria. A, a government that is visionary should institute education uh, for the impoverished. I mean, when you again, when you look at the at the students, you know, I was looking at a teacher teaching the students things like noun and verbs and so on and so forth. And these are students who should not, at their level, still be learning the definition of noun and examples of noun and verbs. These are you know, exactly. teenage students. So they should have known this like five or so years ago. So already okay. you get a sense that the, the, you know, the lives of these students, they, and they've been betrayed. You know, these are, this is a case of betrayal, actually. Yeah. You know? It's amazing. Uh, yeah, um, you know, talked about it, about the um, girls talking mm -hmm. about getting married and stuff. Yeah. I mean, in a way, it might, it might say societal, but in another way, it's just um, law of numbers, the way people get killed there and the way things happen. Mm -hmm. It's just like, look, man, we can't take chances, just go... Um, People I don't believe in investing in. And it's not just girls. It, 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 a lot of the boys are out doing the, either doing banditry or doing vigilantism. Mm -hmm. um, and are poorly or almost, almost entirely mm -hmm. not educated. Um, in fact, for those who don't know, that's the whole premise of, um, of what, what became the name Boko Haram. That's Boko means no. Uh, uh, well, not uh, Haram means Western. Mm -hmm. uh, Haram, Haram. Boko means Western. Boko, Haram means yeah. Boko is actually a corruption of book. Yeah, so exactly. Boko, uh, so book representing Western education, a synergy for Western education. And um, Haram means forbidden. Forbidden. So the and that's the that's the people think is something that oh we just we heard about bring back your girls our girls no. It's a frustration from, again, the 50s, go back, the evolution of people like popular, the Sheikh Gumi of today, his father. You go back, you see the evolution, you see the distant, uh, a lot of them felt these, these their leaders, a lot of them did one or two courses or went to university and are now on Islamic, um, or rather they were not good leaders, good people, um, they didn't feel their impact. There's, there's a, there's a massive, um, not, not just an ethnic divide, but there's a massive class divide as well. When you go into it, 
Um, and it's very clear, it's very, it's, it's, it's very clear in these societies, uh, massive, massive. Um, it's unlike the South where you have a lot more people, you know, for better or worse, um, because they're entrepreneurial, um, hustle, a lot more um, hustling and, and, and gritty. It's not to say everybody's different, you know. Um, I must say in everywhere in the South is actually, uh, it, you know, people out there wanting to find something some way or leave the country or something. Um, I think I lived in the North there's somewhere I enjoyed staying and I, and I, I used to back in the day, enjoy staying with Northern parts, whether I was Bauchi, Gombe, Kaduna, um, Abuja, I don't count as the North, but you could, also, you know, there's more of a community and it was more open, uh, distant. There's more of an acceptance of fit, which in, in their cases, is not always a good thing because when they react, when a lot of these communities react, this is what you have. So I've seen a lot of these things happen from just, I stayed in Boucher, so go to just like on a weekly or bi-weekly basis. Um, the just riots, the, the bomb bomb, you know, the, the, the whole situation in justice is also similar to this, the bedrooms, um, and the distance have a problem with the, uh, Fulanis there. And it ended up largely for decades out. I think it's still going on the just riots and the, the massacres and the murders and, and so on and so forth. But the point is you have, you have a whole generation of people who turned away from education because they saw um, all these guys get this so-called Western education mm -hmm. and they felt that they were even worse. And now we've gone on for 50, 60 years. Well, we've gone on for like 40, 50 years rather. And we are seeing an even uglier version of what we have, what, 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 you know, what was there before. This is way uglier, way more violent. And the cycle is continuing because just like you're saying, you're having people practicing, teenagers practicing yeah. what the noun is. Yeah. Um, so you can imagine if there's a continuous distance to produce these kind of people who feel disenfranchised, who do not get educated, mm -hmm. who, you know, I mean, therefore, cannot, yeah, have no future, have very few opportunities. Um, and, and it's important, you know, um, to emphasize in as we sort of uh, round up and so on, that the, the tragedy, uh, so this, this, this BBC documentary gives us sort of a vignette um, of uh, of the Nigerian tragedy located in a particular place um, that, as the documentary says, more than a million people have been displaced in, in, the, in this area covered by the documentary. But every space in Nigeria uh, participates in this um, experience of tragedy and of dysfunction, okay, to, to a greater or lesser degree. So it's a matter of degree, right? But every, but Nigeria as a whole is a tragedy in progress. Um, 
you know, people could travel from, uh, say, Lagos to Kwara or Lagos to Onitsha or from Onitsha to Port Harcourt, Onitsha to Oware, Onitsha to Enugu. There is hardly now any guarantees that you can ply Nigerian roads and be certain that you're going to get to your destination. You know, the roads are bad, so you face the prospects of accidents. But more than the roads, there is just the fact that a lot of uh, kidnappers have taken staked out positions along different highways in Nigeria to take people. I mean, there is something, a kind of meme that I saw recently where it says uh, the price of flight in Nigeria have risen to 150,000 Naira or something. And he said, but he said uh, the cost of traveling by road, uh, 10 to 30 million, you know, of course, talking about kidnappings. If you are kidnapped, this is the kind of ransom that will be demand uh, uh, that will be demanded. Um, so we have a country that is incredibly broken. No answers by the by the government. Uh, we've done documentaries. Uh, we've done episodes in the past where we pointed to the fact that Asorok itself, the very foundation, the very um, uh, hub of, of, of governance where the president lives and his top officials live has been breached by armed robbers. Okay. The president's convoy has been shot at in his home state of Katsina, where they were going to prepare for the president's uh, visit. And the Nigerian security advisor, NSA, did acknowledge that a bunch of them were killed. A bunch of the president's uh, security people were killed. So if anybody is doubting how bad a shape the country is, I think that this documentary will offer you a much needed vignette into one area of the country. So Again, when we talk about elections, I don't even know how you hold elections in a state like Zamfara. How do you hold elections in all the areas that you see, the burnings, the, the, the just the absolute terror that people live under, okay? Um, and then you have an entire class of, of young men and women who are denied basic education. How are they going to, even if they chose to forgo violence, what are the options available to them uh, to, to lead, lead their lives? Um, I, I want to quote uh, from this again, Emeka, um, uh, you uh, spoke about this Fulani uh, guy who said that he had given up, his, who had given up his weapons at some point, but after some attacks on his community, he said he went and got guns again. Um, and he's the one who talked about that an Hausa person kills an innocent Fulani and that an innocent Fulani kills an innocent Hausa. I mean, a Fulani kills an innocent Hausa. And he says, um, I didn't pick up, uh, pick up arms again to hurt anyone. 
bought guns again to protect myself. He's bought guns again because the Nigerian government, the Nigerian security apparatus has abdicated its responsibility to protect him and to protect other Nigerians in his space. And the most powerful and haunting uh, conclusion today documentary was actually uttered by this same guy. And he simply says, the end of the story is injustice. So meaning that at its core, when you distill the tragedy of what's going on in Zamfara, that it is rooted in injustice. And therefore the solution is justice. And it's justice that will start by a recognition at the highest levels of governance in Nigeria that we have failed Nigerians and that a small, tiny minority of the country's leadership has not only failed to provide basic leadership, but has indeed acted in ways that have ruined both the present as well as imperiled the future Nigeria. Mick, I don't know yeah. if you have any closing words. Yeah, well said. Um, I mean, it's um, a deep, long, uh, continuous situation that obviously, you know, if, if you don't solve something, it just gets, well, if you don't tackle something or face something, it's bound to get worse. It's gotten worse. It keeps getting worse. Yeah. Um, the future doesn't hold much in terms of um, what's going to happen because I mean, place is broken. Um, and all people talk about is just having this singular union of uh, everybody should just pay power everything. And it doesn't look likely that that will be the case. But little instances like this, little or not, well, uh, they're not little, but when you, when you zoom in to different areas like this and you see just how broken it is, you realize just how how much needs to be done um, in terms of restructuring, in terms of, um, you know, putting things in order um, or beginning to beginning to that process. So um, I would say Nigeria needs that restructuring. It doesn't need to break up. might need to break up if it does. If, but it needs a certain level of restructuring. It needs a certain level of, uh, of, of some serious surgical, political repair. From, from you know the political angle, so if not, if you go back and take a look at it, like I said, read that book, the, um, the origins of Boko Haram, mm -hmm. you realize just how anybody wanting you to believe that this started in the last 10 15 years is not being genuine about it. So, but yes, um, it's stuff that we would keep shining a light on, and um, hopefully, you know, more people see how serious these things are. Um, yeah. um, and people are able to go out there and support and, um, and, um, you know, people are able to produce the, these kind of, um, high quality 
material. Yeah. Work, so, yeah. I really, really cannot emphasize enough how important it is for uh, for people to see this extraordinary documentary. You'll you'll be instructed, informed. You'll be provoked. You'll be um, you'll be touched. And hopefully, out of all of this, you're going to make a resolution to become part of a movement, a conversation to change the trajectory of Nigeria's history, um, whatever that means to you. But it is it cannot be um, an indifferent process. It's something that com should compel you to think about the state of Nigeria as it is today. And where do we go from here? And how do you become part of the answer rather than part of the problem? In the end, the end of the story is injustice. Justice should become the beginning of the next chapter of the story. Thank you very much for joining us uh, on this special edition of our podcast, and we look forward to welcoming you again soon. Have a brilliant week. Yep.